Okay, while we're waiting for everybody to come in, let me ask all you Las Vegans, have you ever been to a magic show in this town? Yeah? Did you ever see a trick, a magic trick that totally blew you away? Well, yeah. Give me an example. What trick blew you away? I mean, can you remember anything? David talked about made the planes. Yeah. Why did that blow you away, Ed? Couldn't figure out how he did it. Couldn't figure out how he did it. It was a mystery, right? Well, that's what we're going to be studying today. It's a mystery. Okay? The incarnation is a mystery. And we really can't figure out how he did it. So... Let's, uh, let's go ahead and open with prayer. Our Father, we uh, desire to know you better and to um, understand better how you revealed yourself to us in your word. So we pray that you would be our teacher this morning, that we might uh, grasp um, your immensity and your condescension toward us in the incarnation. Uh, so be with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So... That's what our lesson is about today, the mystery of the incarnation, which is not a magic trick, but a miracle. So really, and this is number one on your handout, if you're offended by my high school type handouts, you don't have to bother with it. I just like to do that for people who like to write a lot of words down. So number one, really, there's two fundamental mysteries in the Christian faith, the Trinity and the incarnation, and any attempts to logically explain or demystify, I've got demystify spelled out for you, to, to demystify either one of those typically leads to heresy. C.S. Lewis once said, if Christianity were something we were making up, of course we would make it easier, but it is not. We cannot compete in simple ideas with people who are inventing religions. How could we? We're dealing with biblical fact. Of course, anyone can be simple if he has no facts to bother about. So in order to have a more complete grasp of Christ's incarnation, it's necessary to have some sort of understanding of the Trinity. And, you know, we've all been guilty of keeping the doctrine of the Trinity on the shelf and until it becomes useful. It's like, oh, no, the Jehovah's Witnesses are coming. <laughs> Get out the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, and I know we've had a lot of teaching regarding the Trinity lately. But really, we're, we're just going to have a brief review. So first, and this is number two in your handout, the Bible tells us there is one God. And this is known as the, anybody know what it is? The Shema. Okay, what is the Shema? Yeah, it's right there. Okay. Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5. The Shema is the, the prayer that... Jewish people say morning and evening, they teach their children. <clears throat> Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then we see it again in Mark 12, 28 to 30, when a, a scribe asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with with all your mind and all your strength. So, and this is number three in your handout, in what respect is God one? And the answer is in respect of his nature and being. God is one in regards to his nature and being. There's one essence, one divinity, one power, 
one will, one energy, one authority, one dominion, one sovereignty. As Romans 1.20 says, it's his eternal power and divine nature. So God is numerically one, okay? God is one being. Scripture reveals that there are in that one divine essence three eternal distinctions that are described as persons, known as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All three have identical attributes, and therefore they are one. Not merely one in substance, in essence, but one in purpose and will. So there's not three wills in God. What would we call that if we had a God with three different wills? Not monotheism. Tritheism, okay? So we're monotheists. Big word, but there it is. Okay, so the Father, Son, and Spirit each occupy the same divine space. I mean, we know God isn't spatial, but I'm just trying to communicate the way God communicates to us. They're, each shares the same eternal being. The Father dwells in the Son, and the Son dwells in the Father. Father and Son dwell in the Spirit, who in turn indwells the Father and Son. And in recent years, it's become common to employ the notion of perichoresis. It's a Greek word that really means, you know, like periscope, look around, chorus, dance, dance around. So the Trinity is like, you know, in, indwelling each other. They're dancing around. So it's um, a lot of people are using that to help us to understand how they can mutually indwell each other. So the divine being, or the divine essence, is not something that is divided between the persons, each person receiving one-third. Um, the, the, it's, it is fully and equally possessed by all three persons, okay? So one of the doctrines that's uh, important when you're studying God's attributes is the doctrine of simplicity. And in the doctrine of simplicity, we learn that God is not composite. He's not parts and pieces. He's really not his attributes. I mean, his at when we study his attributes, for example, the doctrine of simplicity, we learn that he's, his godness is one. And that regards God as one. That some people would call it the doctrine of unity. So, so the divine being is fully and equally possessed by all three persons, such that each three persons are fully God. And by the way, you know, I know this is a little difficult in a way. If you have a question, please raise your hand. If you have a difference of opinion, please keep it to yourself. <laughs> this is, I mean, really what I'm teaching here is fairly orthodox reform doctrine, okay? But it's, it's, uh, a lot of this stuff is stuff a lot of people haven't really studied and have strange notions about it, doing this lesson was helpful for me. So, each of the three persons is not the other two persons. Is your head starting to hurt yet? Each of the three persons is related to the other two, but are distinct from them. The will of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, and their operation is inseparable and one. Again, there are not three wills, but one will, because God is one. So the Bible presents the three members of the Godhead of relating to one another as I or you, and thus they're distinct persons. For example, John 15, 26 says, 
But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness. So we have these, these distinctions. Um, and here's a simple model of the Trinity. This is number four in your handout. We have one what and three who's. One what and three who's. One what is the essence. One being. One, okay. But we should really avoid mental pictures of the Trinity if, as if there are three people sitting around a boardroom deciding who does what. And that's kind of a problem with our usual understanding of the word person or the usual connotation of personhood is we have this idea of individualism, okay? And the assumption that each person is an isolated being against all the others. And again, that's tritheism, okay? But notice every time that you say persons, three persons instead of three people, you're registering in ordinary language your sense that there's something special about the Trinity. And many well-meaning Christians do use this boardroom example when speaking of the pactum salutis. Okay, I'll define it in a second, but um, we would call it the covenant of grace. Okay, and here's here's an exaggeration. You know, they they thinking of the boardroom. So God the Father calls a meeting, and the other two persons of the Trinity come, and He goes, "Hey, fellas, I know this is blasphemous, but this is what people do." Okay. Hey, fellas, I'm, I'm glad you all came to the meeting here today. And, you know, I've got this idea on how we're going to deal with Adam's sin. Uh, son, I want you to uh, manifest yourself in flesh on the earth. And the son goes, what? Are you kidding? Oh, the father says, oh, but there's a big reward. And, oh, man, okay, I guess I'll do it. Okay, that is the way many people would have you imagine the three wills in the Pactum Salutis. But that is not the way it happens, okay? The Pactum Salutis, uh, the Westminster Larger Confession, question 31, calls it the covenant of grace, okay? Uh, you might see it in verses like Ephesians 1, 3 to 10, where it says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Okay, so the Pactum Salutis is defined as a pretemporal, before there was time, Okay agreement in which the members of the Holy Trinity decreed, not agreed, decreed, that Jesus was to be the Redeemer of those whom the Father had chosen in him, and that Jesus would do this on behalf of and in the place of all those sinners chosen before the foundation of the world. This means that God's saving grace is not directed to the world in general, but to those specific individuals whom he intends to save. In this covenant of redemption or covenant of grace, the Holy Spirit will apply the work of Christ to all those whom the Father had chosen and for whom the Son will die, ensuring that all the gospel's elect will come to faith in Jesus Christ through the preaching of the gospel, which is the divinely appointed means by which God's elect are called to faith. So in the Pactum Salutis, we're not to think of God as having three distinct wills. That is an error, a very bad error, and a very common error. We are to think of God in his one essential and undivided will, which is synonymous with his essence as freely determining that the Son would become man according to the suitability of relations between the three persons. Everybody good so far? I know your brain's probably hurting a little bit. That's why it's a mystery. Okay. 
So when we talk about the Trinity, it's good to make the distinction between the imminent or ontological Trinity, which is God in his own inner life as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the economic Trinity, God with respect to uh, creation as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit acting toward the world. And this is number five in your handout. The imminent Trinity refers to the Trinity as the pers- as the persons exist within their relations to each other. It's also known as opera ad intra. Opera means work, ad means towards, intra means toward the inside. So when we talk about the imminent trinity, the ontological trinity, we're speaking about the relations between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as they work toward the inside of their essence, okay? This will be helpful as we progress with the lesson. So it's a Latin phrase which means the inner acts of God, namely the necessary acts of God for him to be fully who he is. They are works within the divine being, self-existence of God beyond and above all created time. This is number six on your handout. The economic trinity refers to the roles that each person plays in the outworking of God's plan in regard to creation. It's also known as Opera add extra. Opera's work add towards outside. The works outside of God's essence. Okay, toward creation. Those are activities and effects by which the Trinity is manifestedly outward in regard to creation. And the economic Trinity is God revealed under the conditions of time, sin, and incarnation. So there's complete equality within the imminent Trinity. Trinity, and yet there is clearly an ordering of roles within the economic Trinity, with the Son taking the position of uh, to the Father, for example. So all three persons of the Godhead do have different roles and perform different functions within the economic Trinity, which is opera ad extra. Thank you. But all three are so united, okay, perichoresis, that no work of God is ever done exclusively by just one person of the Godhead. All three are equally involved in each work of God, even though one person is in the foreground. So, for example, in the Incarnation, all three members of the Godhead partake in the work of the Son, taking upon himself a human nature. It's the Father who sends the Son into... Yes, sir? I struggle, and I'm not sure, maybe you can help me, with... Jesus took a body. We're going to get there. But here's my... Okay, well, let me ask the question, and let it stay there. He came, he took a body, he went back to heaven. Does he still have a body? Is he going to have a body through eternity? Yes, sir. It's in the lesson. (laughs) We'll get there. Okay? Good questions. I mean, this this is why I wanted to talk about this stuff, is because... You know, you can really get lost in your thoughts. And um, unlike a magic trick, what I'm telling you is incomprehensible. It is a mystery. And, and that's kind of the punchline of the lesson. It, it is a mystery, and we must accept it, okay? So uh, God is one, and that's pretty straightforward in, to, to grasp. But he is also three persons, and that's more complex. Understanding even a little of such grandeur does tax our minds and stretches our thinking. But we are called by Scripture to worship 
the only true God, God in three persons. And this is number seven on your handout. Christianity stands or falls with the doctrine of the Trinity, which is the touchstone and the non-negotiable truth of Christian orthodoxy. Ortho, straight, doxy, straight doctrine, okay? Now, on to the Incarnation. To really grasp the, uh, the Incarnation, you've got to start with the Trinity. As J.I. Packer, Packer said, here are two mysteries for the price of one. The plurality of persons within the unity of God and the union of Godhead and manhood in the person of Jesus. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is this truth of the Incarnation. So the second mystery has to do with the incarnation of one of those persons in the Trinity. The Logos of God. Some people might say Logos. I, I say Logos. Um, so Jesus, prior to the Incarnation, is typically referred to as the Logos or the Word. I'm just going to use the Word for the rest of the... If I say the Word, I'm talking about the pre-incarnate Son, second person of the Trinity. And we see that in you know verses like John 1.14, where the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Um, the Word, by the way, did not have a human name until Joseph named his baby Jesus in obedience to the command of the angel in Matthew 1. So incarnation means took flesh. You know, when I used to teach high school kids, I used to teach them, you know, hey, you know, when you have chili con carne, what is that? Chili with meat, okay? Or carne asada. That's Carne is meat, okay? So uh, it's derived from the Latin in and caro, which means flesh, meaning clothed in flesh. And the word incarnation is not, as the Trinity, is not in the Bible. But we have a ton of examples uh, of the concept. For example, in Romans 8.3, it says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Romans 9.5 says, To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who was God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Or Galatians 4.4. 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoptions as sons. This is number eight on your handout. The doctrine of the Trinity declares that the man Jesus is truly divine. And the doctrine of the Incarnation declares that the divine Jesus is truly human. So it's really hard to talk about the Incarnation without understanding a little bit about the Trinity. This is number nine. So at Christmas, we celebrate something quite mind-boggling. God really entering our space and time. Opera ad extra. Thank you. This becomes important. I mean... There were so many arguments over the, um, the doctrine that a group was um, submitting. It was called the eternal submission of the Son. And unless you understand things like ad extra and ad intra. Ad extra, yes. Ad intra, no. They're equal. Totally God. One will. He can't be submissive if there's one will, right? This is why... It's helpful to, to be able to, I know it's a kind of, you know, Latin word, but it's helpful when people are having these discussions. 
Okay, so God really entering our space and time opera ad extra. The eternal becomes temporal. The infinite becomes finite. The word that created all things becomes flesh. The incarnation has been called the miracle of miracles. As one theologian puts it, heaven and earth met and kissed one another, namely God and man. This is number 10 on your handout. The incarnation should leave us in awe. And why? And because as Hervin Bavink says, he's a Dutch theologian, he says it is completely incomprehensible to us how God can reveal himself and to some extent make himself known in created beings. Eternity in time, immensity in space, infinity in the finite, immutability in change, being in becoming, the all as it were in that which is nothing. This mystery cannot be comprehended. It can only be gratefully acknowledged. So, Jesus is fully man. Doctrines found in many texts which speak of Jesus as coming in the flesh, being sent in the flesh, appearing in the flesh, he suffered in the flesh, died in the flesh, made peace by abolishing in the flesh the enmity, uh, made reconciliation in the body of his flesh. And in some, as again, as John 1.14 says, the word became flesh. The son needed a body in order to offer his body. He needed a body in order that his resurrection body might be the prototype for our resurrection bodies. And Jesus is fully God. He said, before Abraham was, I am. That's John 8.58. And the Apostle Paul declares in Colossians 2.9, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Colossians 1.19, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased. That word fullness, okay? It doesn't say partialness. It's the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus said in John 10, verse 30, I am the Father of one. And to Philip, who sought a demonstration of glory where he says, show us the Father. Jesus answered, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. That's in John 14, 9. So we see then that Jesus doesn't merely resemble God and he doesn't merely love with the love that God loves with or show compassion like God would or live the way God would, but he actually is himself the most high God. Jesus Christ really and truly possesses all the attributes of God. He's omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, self-existent, sovereign, eternal, creator. Jesus is God. So not only is this the greatest and most stunning miracle it has ever been or ever will be, but it is also the answer to the most important and relevant question in the universe. Who is Jesus Christ? And the answer revealed by the truth of the incarnation is Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man in one person. He's God incarnate, okay? This is number 11 on your handout. The Son of God became man in time, add extra, what he eternally was not. He did not cease to be what he eternally was, ad intra, but he began to be what he was not. So the Word did not pretend to be a man or play at being a human. His humanity is authentic. Um, it's not our artificial or ethereal. His humanity was not bolted onto his divinity. The word became flesh. 
The word did not beam down in full bodily form and the word did not enter into flesh as if to suggest that there was a man, a human being into which the word made entrance. This is number 12 on your handout. In order to save us, God had to become man. The son assumed a genuine human nature in order to perfectly, perfectly obey God's law in order to fulfill the covenant of works. Suffer and die on the cross as a vicarious atonement and rise again victorious over Satan, sin and death. Even now the God-man sits enthroned. God-man is your word there. That, that, that's When we think of Jesus, he's the God-man. That's the way we should refer to him. He sits enthroned at the right hand of God, interacting and applying redemption to his people. I, I've often found the Heidelberg Catechism quite useful in understanding why Jesus had to be both God and man. Question 16 of the Heidelberg asks, why must he be a true and righteous man? And the answer is, he must be a true man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. He must be a righteous man, as a man, okay? Not because one who himself is a sinner can, because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. Question 17 asks, why must he also be true God? And the answer is, so that by the power of his divinity, he might bear the weight of God's anger in his humanity and earn for us and restore to us righteousness and life. Okay? That's the only way we could be saved, by a God-man. I mean, you know, when you think of logic, when you think of sometimes... I deal with a lot of math at work, and I look at logic and relationship, and it's the only way we could be saved, okay? It had to be a God-man. So the Bible does call the incarnation a mystery. Ephesians 1, 7 to 10 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery, the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And Paul says in Colossians 1.26 that the incarnation is a mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. In Colossians 2.3, Paul prays that the Colossian church may reach all the riches of full understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And one of the profoundest statements of this mystery is 1 Timothy 3.16, where it says, Great, indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Charles Haddon Spurgeon says of this verse, so you can see here, theologians throughout the ages are trying to, to connect the dots. You know, I'm a teacher, I like to connect. We cannot connect the dots, okay? He says, beloved, this is a mystery surpassing all comprehension. If any man should attempt to explain or even to define the union of the divine and human in the Lord Jesus, he would soon prove his folly. 
The scholars of the Dark Ages were very fond of asking puzzling questions about, about what they called the hypostatical union, we're going to talk about that in a second, of the deity and the humanity of Christ. They could not cast so much as a ray of light upon the subject. They amused themselves with enigmas and lost themselves in labyrinths. It is enough for us to know that the incarnation is a glorious fact and it suffices us to hold it in its simplicity. God was manifest in the flesh of Jesus Christ, the incarnate world. This is number 13. So we must stand strong in the truth about who our Savior is. For salvation is itself is at stake in what we believe about his identity. Now, one might be tempted to draw the faulty conclusion that a change occurred in God when the second person of the Godhead took to himself a true body and a reasonable soul being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Yet the scriptures are clear that God does not and cannot change. Which one of his attributes do you think that would be? Immutability. immutability. Thank you. Okay. So Christ is immutable. Father's immutable. Holy Spirit's immutable. Okay. So this is number 14 on your handout. When the word became flesh, he did not cease to be the word. The word veiled, hid, and voluntarily restricted the use of certain divine powers and prerogatives. He willingly cloaked his glory under the veil of his human nature that he took upon himself. It's not that the divine nature stops being divine in, in order to become human, because God cannot cease to be God. Doctrine of simplicity, immutability. Okay? In other words, when the word became flesh, he did not commit divine suicide. Uh, Philippians 2 verse 7 uh, is a verse that in the NS, NASB it says Jesus emptied himself. If you're using the ESV it says he made himself nothing. Those are both legitimate translations of the Greek verb canoe or K-E-N-O-O. But they must be interpreted carefully in a way that doesn't contradict the rest of scripture. An increasingly prevalent teaching in evangelical circles, particularly in charismatic circles, is the doctrine of kenosis. This is number 15 on your handout. The doctrine of kenosis is the heretical teaching that in the incarnation, the son divested himself of some or all of his attributes of the deity, making him less than fully divine and so not truly divine. And hopefully you, you can see why we need, Jesus had to be fully God. He can't be, all right? So the emptying of himself referred to in Philippians 2.7 is thought not as a reduction in the Godhead to smooth out uh, the mystery of the incarnation. And this is what, what a lot of theologians do. They try to figure things out to smooth out the mystery or to help us connect the dots, okay? Um, you can't do it. Uh, heretical kenoticism sees the incarnation as God minus. Say, God minus is some of his deity. Um, scripture teaches that the incarnation was God plus. This is number 16 on your handout. There was no vacancy in the Trinity during our Lord's earthly ministry. 
The incarnation was a miracle of addition, not subtraction. Jesus took on humanity. He did not divest himself of deity. So in Christ, we see eternity and temporality. Eternal blessed, temporal means end time, okay? Eternal blessedness and temporal sorrow. Almightiness and weakness, omniscience and ignorance. Unchangeableness and changeableness. Infinity and finitude. All these contrasting attributes come together in the person Jesus Christ. English Puritan Presbyterian Stephen Charnock said, this is number 17 on your handout, Jesus had both the nature which had offended and the nature which was offended, a nature to please God and a nature to please us. So when we think about the incarnation, we don't want to get the two natures mixed up and think that Jesus had a deified human nature or a humanized divine nature. We can distinguish them, but we can't tear them apart because they exist in perfect unity. This is number 18 on your handout. Jesus' divine nature or essence did not take on the human nature, nor did the divine person take on another person, but rather a divine person took on a human nature. One of the little diagrams I like to use sometimes is Jesus was a person. He had a divine nature. Jesus took on a human nature, okay? This nature does not talk to this nature, but this nature talks to the person. This nature talks to the person, but neither do the, do, do the natures mixed. They're not mixed, okay? He's fully human, fully divine, fully God. And one of the helpful things about this little diagram is it helps us understand for example, the disagreement we have with Lutherans in their idea of communion. We say Christ is present spiritually in the elements, okay? Spiritually. Why? Because, to answer Ralph's question, God, second son of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, is in a physical geographical location as we speak. He is in a body. He can't be in a body and present. So Lutherans say that they connect the triangle. They say the human, that's their way around it. He's in a body, but he's also not in a body. Amen, brother? <laughs> yes, because he has all the presence. Yes. Okay. There's some better stuff coming, man. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to help you grasp this stuff, and I, I know you won't be able to, but okay. So, Christ is only one person. Christ has two natures. Each nature is full and complete. He's not partially God and partially man. Each nature remains distinct. Number 19 on your handout is God has one who and two what's. One who, one person, two what's, natures, fully God and fully man. And both natures of Christ in the Bible are presented as I. So, not only did this the scriptures never distinguish between an I and you and Christ as we do in the Trinity. Okay, in the Trinity, we see the, the I-you concept of distinction. But in, the scriptures typically refer to both natures as I, thus proving that it's a single individual. So, for example, we read in John 18.37, where it says, Pilate therefore said to him, So, are you a king? And Jesus answered, 
You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born. And for this I have come into the world. Okay, to bear witness to the truth. So Jesus here is referring to his two natures, saying, I've been born, okay? I'm fully human. And I have come into the, into the world. I'm fully divine. So his human nature was born, whereas it was his divine nature that came into the world. Yet he speaks of both natures as I. And we call this the communication of attributes. Whatever you can say about the human nature, you can say about the person. Whatever you say about the divine nature, you can say about the person. Okay? So, this is number 20 on your handout. Christ's human nature stayed human, and Christ's divine nature stayed divine. And those two natures did not con communicate attributes to each other. Okay? But rather to the person of Christ. The person. Okay, this is known as the hypostatic union. And I always use the uh, G.I. Williamson illustration of here's Christ and his divine nature. At the hypostatic union, he added a human nature. So here, is the person of Christ, two natures forevermore. Okay? He exists. He was bodily resurrected. He bodily ascended. He is, as we speak, in a physical geographical location. Anybody have any questions about that? <laughs> yes, sir. I know. <laughs> So the Reformed tradition's classic distinctive is that God is always and ever God and man is always and ever man. Even in the unity of Christ, the two natures remain unmixed. So in Christ, there are two natures that remain distinct and retain their own attributes and integrity, yet the Son is able to act through both natures. For this reason, and this is number 21 in your handout, and this is the hard thing to really comprehend, is the sun is not completely swallowed up or contained by the human nature. Okay, the divine nature didn't beam down and is, is now spatially uh, non, not, not omnipresent. Okay, it's hard to imagine that there was no vacancy in the Trinity. The second person is still, I don't know how it happened. I don't know how. Um, that's the mystery, okay? But um, let me just finish the thing. He's not swallowed up or totally contained by his human nature. He's able to act outside of it in his human nature by holding up creation. I mean, the second person of the Trinity quit, didn't quit acting as the second person of the Trinity at the incarnation, okay? The eternal Logos, God's Son, cannot be contained in the physical body of Jesus. His spirit fills entire creation. So that's why when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we say Christ is present spiritually. Remaining what he was, fully God, he became what he was not, fully man. And this is uh, number 22 in your handout. 
the important concept in this doctrine is that whatever Christ did, he did as a whole person, okay? For instance, when his human body was beaten, tortured, and killed, he suffered as a whole person. So even that, even though God cannot be killed, it can be said that God died for our sins. It's one of my favorite hymns, says, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? So because of the truth of the two natures, we can biblically say that God the Son is ubiquitous, immense, filling everything with all of himself always. Or he's in a fixed geographical lo location, bodily. Christ is infinite or Christ is finite. He existed from all eternity or he was born in Bethlehem. This is number 23 in the answer to your question, Ralph. When the word once became flesh, he became flesh forever. After his earthly life, death, and resurrection, Jesus did not divest himself of the flesh or cease to be a man. He is a man now at the right hand of God. He will always be the God-man, and he will be the one we see. We will see Jesus in his body when he, when he brings heaven to earth in, you know, in the second coming. And we'll not be able to see the Holy Spirit or the Father. You know what? We are finite, and we will remain finite. We will, we will see the God-man. I don't, I don't anticipate that we'll ever be able to see with our eyes God the Father. You know, we will, we will see what God has prepared for us, which is the God-man. He is God. Um, mystery? Mark, the Father and the Spirit could manifest themselves in some physical way if they wanted to. I mean, they are God. Yeah, yeah. Yes, Jan. Or isn't this the result of the fact that we think he's in heaven, the results of his resurrection? I understand. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he is he is the God-man in bodily form. I mean, he's glorified, but yes. But uh, blessed is the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Um, you about just Jesus only? Yes. That's what I think. I don't. We are finite. I believe we will remain finite. I don't. I don't know. Obviously, we're going out into Never Never Land asking a question like that. But but this is what we do: is we speculate about such things. Just say he's seen me, he's seen seen Father. So that's what we'll see. We will we will see God in the flesh with our eyes. But I don't know that. Um, well, we'll never be eternal because we were created. Yeah. We're going forward, but not, we're not going to be. We are never going to have the attributes of God. We are never going to, to understand the concept of infinity, of, you know, just the pureness, the wholeness. I mean, we, we can be amazed by it, and we can apprehend it. I don't think we can ever comprehend it. And that's really kind of, yes, sir. Mathematicians are logical people, and... My wife said she knew of one that said, I could never believe in a God that I could fully comprehend. And Guess what? We have a God. It's exactly yeah. what we have. Nothing yes. Fully comprehend. That comes, that's, that's where faith enters. Oh, guess what? That's my next statement. So how are we to understand the nature of a, the union of a human nature and a divine nature? We really can't. So we must accept it by faith. Uh, Philippians 2.6, where Jesus says, 
though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. It's hard for us to grasp. So the God, the Gospels present Jesus as enjoying a seamless human consciousness, yet we never learn from the inside what it's like to live in a two-natured life. You know, theologians speculate about this stuff. John Calvin wrote, For we know that in Christ the two natures were united in one person in such a manner that each retained its own properties. And more especially, the divine nature was in a state of repose and did not at all exert itself. Whenever it was necessary that the human nature should act separately according what was peculiar to the human nature in discharging Christ's office as mediator. So there would be no impropriety, therefore, in saying that Christ, who knew all things, was ignorant of something in respect of his perception as a man. For otherwise, he could not have been able to, to have grief and anxiety, and he would not have been like us. So basically, um, attempts to spatialize, you know, which is our human tendency. We like to spatialize things because that's the way we think. And it's hard to spatialize the Trinity. It's hard to spatialize, you can't, how Jesus could be omnipresent and physically in a body. It's, okay? So like other biblical mysteries, we can simply state what, the, this is number 24 in your handout. Like other biblical mysteries, we can simply state what the mystery is using words that a child can, can grasp Yet, what we express remains unfathomable to the most brilliant of minds. Again, use this verse over and over, 1 Timothy 3.16. Great indeed is the mystery of godliness of Christ. And if you think about it, the real mystery, the real miracle of the grace of Christmas is that we are united to God if we are united to Christ by faith. So if Christ is the foundation of our faith, faith, and his person as incarnate is mysterious, incomprehensible, and only barely apprehended by our finite and sin-darkened minds, then at the foundation of our faith is a mystery. And this is central to the existence of the church and to the proclamation of the offense of the cross. Christians exist through a mystery. And at the center of the proclamation of the good news lies a mystery. This is number 25 on your handout. We exist to worship. Having this richer understanding of the incarnation of God the Son should greatly enhance our worship. We will have great marvel and gladness at the fact that the eternal person of God the Son became man forever. Our recognition of Christ's worth will be heightened and our faith in him will be strengthened by having this deeper understanding of who he is. That's what I got. Any questions? Yes, ma'am. It's the doctrine of kenosis. People would say, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. When Christ became incarnate, they would say, whoop! Oh, He came down. Now we don't have a trinity. There's, that's what people, what I was trying to get people to understand is in God's unity, in God's oneness, it's always Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's no vacancy in the trinity, okay? He didn't beam down 
Holy Spirit's not physical anyways. Yes, ma'am. It's easy to see how people, and I'm saying, separate persons like your illustration when you started, when you only understand the economic, uh, the economy of the Trinity. Yes. Each position instead of the imminent. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of why it's helpful to, to have some of these distinctions is so that we can understand that God in his being, in his essence, is... There is no, there's one will, there's, there's perfect agreement, there's perfect harmony, there's perfect oneness, unity. But we see in the, um, the act of creation where sin enters the world and the way, and we know all of this from the New Testament, okay? The New Testament shows us the roles of the various persons of the Trinity, but, and that's where some people might get some wacky ideas. And they'll ask you something. Well, how come Jesus said he didn't know when he was coming back? Because that was his human nature talking, okay? And the divine nature sits in repose. Yes? Yes? Um, you, make, you use the phrase, the omnipresence of Jesus. Right? Yes. Right? What did Jesus say? He said, I have to go so the great comforter can come. Yes. But Jesus is in heaven as a person with the body seated at the right hand of the Father. Yes. The Holy Spirit is what's indwelling people in this land and which came back into the world when Jesus left it. Yes. So Jesus isn't omnipresent, but the Holy Spirit is. No, Jesus in his divine nature is omnipresent. What? Jesus in his divine nature is omnipresent. That's the, that was the purpose of this lesson. He is both. Jesus is both ubiquitous, omnipresent, and this is the mystery. He yeah. made the distinction between himself as the human and the Holy Spirit who's coming into the world. And he didn't start his ministry until he was baptized and the Holy Spirit descended on him. A lot of mystery there, Neil. Any other questions? Yes. Just one example of Jesus' humanity was he was so moved by, by the grief of Martha and Mary at the death of their brother that he wept. You know, that's why our mediator, he's our, he's our kinsman redeemer. We got, we got to shut this down, okay? We're done. Yes, sir. Okay, so on your chart up there, you have this bifurcation that occurs at a certain point where the person existed. Yeah. Prior to that time, it really was kind of like Father, Word, and Holy Spirit. Yes. We could not at that point say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It was Father, Word, and Holy Spirit. Well, we refer to him as the, yes, you're absolutely right. We refer to him as Son because... That's the way he's revealed to us in the New Testament. The lower left-hand corner, there's a point. I know there's, I kind of relate this to points in time. You have the apostles that actually experienced Christ. They lived and walked with the person. Yeah. At some point in time, we presumably will have that same Exactly. Ability. Yeah. Go back to the lower left-hand squiggle. If the fallacy of all this is God is timeless. Adam over there, there's no sin in the world. What is Adam's experience relative to the Father, Word, and Holy Spirit? That's, I, I don't know. I'm, we're at the end of this lesson. That's, you know, it's, these are good things to think about, you know, but it's important to know that we worship one God, triune in persons, and our mediator, the second person of the Trinity, is both uh, human and divine, and he needed to be to be our Savior. So let's, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that you uh, have loved us, that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have sent us a mediator, 
who can uh, be both the nature that was offended and the nature that offended. He, he is truly our kinsman redeemer, and he is truly God. We, we know we cannot fully comprehend, Lord, but we pray that you would let us just be in awe of what you have done for us uh, and to know that you love us. And we pray that it would enhance our worship this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.